Okay, recording, recording, recording. Good to go? I'm good to go. Do you need a glass of water or anything? Or I've got I've got some water here. I can reach for it if need be. Okay. I'll take one quick sip. I once had a, a fellow on. His name is Jim Mars. He's, um, his book was used, actually, from the movie JFK. And I said, I've got a cup of coffee going. He goes, oh, he says, I've got my coffee, too. And he holds up his mug, and he says... Uh, Except mine's got a head on it. <laughs> <laughs> Showtime. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all. It's a chilly night out there. Looks like there's going to be some bad weather, so it's a great night to jump in your most comfy seat, kick your feet up, and relax. Take this time for you. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Tonight, folks, we're going to delve into something called mind control, in particular, the CIA's MKUltra mind control program. Now, for those of you that may be unaware of this program, the younger folks today, there is a reference to it in the hit TV show called Stranger Things. And my thanks to Carolee Gibson for the heads up on that one. Our guest tonight and co-author of the book, along with John Selby, Blowing America's Mind, a true story of Princeton, CIA mind control, LSD, and Zen, is Paul Jeffrey Davids, who is a first-person witness to what took place as he was one of the people experimented on. Tonight, we are going to get his first-hand account. But first, there's always some context. MKUltra, folks, was a covert operation designed and conducted by the CIA, who else, that went on from the 1950s to the 1970s. Now, it had the goal of developing mind control techniques that could be used against enemies during the Cold War. The CIA made extensive use of existing psychiatric facilities. Most were associated with learning hospitals and universities, such as Princeton and, yes, in Canada, McGill University in my hometown of Montreal, specifically at the Allen Memorial Psychiatric Hospital. Now, the subjects, many of which were unwitting, suffered extensive use of psychedelic drugs, psych physical and mental abuse, sleep deprivation, and malnourishment, along with other experiments, quote-unquote. In all, there were 149 MKUltra subprojects dealing with behavioral modification. A further 33 subprojects were funded under MKUltra as well that were not related to this type of research, and we will never know what these projects were about. Paul Jeffrey Davids is a Los Angeles-based producer, writer, and director of such films as Roswell, The UFO Cover-Up, Hasbro's The Transformers, and Timothy Leary's Dead, which premiered, by the way, folks, right here at TIFF in Toronto, the uh, Toronto International Film Festival. Paul is author of six Star Wars novels for Lucasfilm, and he has a BA in psychology to boot from the very same Princeton University. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for that great introduction, Brent. Oh, you're most I, welcome. I, I, I want to begin by pointing out that some of the horrors of MKUltra that you described that happened at McGill University and the Dr. Cameron experiments uh, don't 
really apply to the part of the program that I was part of while I was at Princeton. And we're going to get into, you know, yep. what the goals were and why it was so different. Okay, let's start off then at the beginning. How did this all start off for you? Now, I have to preface it by this because many people think of MK Ultra and right away they jump to the uh, movie, 1962 movie, The Manchurian Candidate, starring Frank Sinatra. If you're going to reference it for pop culture, there's another one that was made in 2004, a remake, if you will, starring Denzel Washington. Was this common knowledge that there could be such a thing through hypnosis as a Manchurian Candidate? The Manchurian Candidate aspect of it was, I think, labeled under Operation Artichoke. It was another subdivision of MKUltra. Uh, it was a different project, but it was one of the goals. Could a perfect assassin be created who uh, would uh, commit an assassination uh, based on a hypnotic trigger? Uh, his memory tampered with so that uh, it would be blacked out, have nothing to report, no knowledge of it afterwards. You know, the description of Sirhan Sirhan and the RFK assassination and the blackout of his memory, he remembered nothing. I mean, it's very, very suspect. Uh, but in, in presenting myself as one of the guinea pigs of the program, I, I want to make clear from the start that this happened when I was a, an undergraduate at Princeton. I was a psychology major, as was my co-author, John Selby, late 1960s. And we were enticed by the fact that uh, they were doing experiments in deep hypnosis at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute, Skillman, New Jersey, uh, not far from Princeton. And that the doctors involved in these studies, particularly one of them was very famous, Dr. Humphrey Osmond, for psychedelic research at that time. In fact, Osmond coined the term psychedelic. Uh, before that, they were psychotomimetic drugs, drugs that mimic psychosis. Well, did they really mimic psychosis? Uh, his theory was no. He came up with psychedelic mind manifesting. The fact that Osmond ran the program was what uh, enticed me to want to be part of it. And as many of the subjects of MKUltra were completely unaware that they were being experimented upon, I mean, people were given drugs without their consent or knowledge in many of these 149 projects that you referenced. But in this case, they had my consent. They had John Selby's consent. We didn't know exactly what we were getting into, but we did know that we would undergo hypnosis, deep hypnosis, after there would be an extensive training period, uh, it would be uh, as often as a couple times a week. It would be a long-term project uh, that our memory of many of these uh, hypnotic conditions would be blanked out, but we were promised that memory would be restored before the end of the program. One of the controversial things that, you know, to what extent, you know, did that happen? Um, so we were, you know, jumping into the pond, you know, ready, ready to see what the results would be. And the book, this is not the kind of nonfiction book that uh, a scholar might write about the history of the MKUltra program. It's not what it is. It's based on what we lived. We wanted to give people the subjective experience of what we lived through, what it was like to be a student at Princeton at that time, 
It wasn't co-ed then. It was an all-male school. You get the whole atmosphere of Ivy League Princeton at that time, a very exclusive school, one of the, I think, the fourth oldest school in the United States, and a very prestigious institution which has given us presidents, Supreme Court justices, Nobel Prize winners. Albert Einstein taught there. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about it. He was a student there. John F. Kennedy attended but dropped out for health reasons. So a great institution which was involved surreptitiously in the MK Ultra mind control experiments. We know this from a headline released. It's on the back cover of the book. Uh, the New York Times reporting that Princeton and Columbia administrators were informed about the involvement of their universities in these secret uh, psychological experiments funded by the CIA. So now, that's, how, that's how it starts. Were you aware that this was part of some greater experiment, or did you just think this was going to be a consciousness-expanding experiment? Um, and did you have to sign a waiver? We did sign waivers. Oh, you did. Okay. We were, we, yes. We needed, uh, I needed parental permission, which was not easily forthcoming. You know, my parents were quite against it. <laughs> From my point of view, though, as someone at that time, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I gave okay. that idea up. I, but I was pre-med. I was, you know, I took organic chemistry and all the sciences you need to qualify for, to go to medical school while I was at Princeton. And I thought, as someone so intensely interested in psychiatry and psychology, that I could really learn something from this program and, and, and these doctors. So um, I went into it with that, uh, with that positive attitude that I could really learn something uh, substantial. But we, I had absolutely no concept that it was part of a larger program that it was funded by a dummy corporation set up by the CIA. They had lots of them. They needed paymasters. The checks going to the researchers didn't, didn't say that it was from a CIA bank account. In this case, it was the Society for the Study of Human Ecology. What does that mean? <laughs> what, what, does that say CIA to you? I, I don't, it doesn't to me. I don't know what that, what is human ecology? But the, um, the project was being funded. The CIA at that time had an immense interest in LSD. We, we, you, you read the books about the 60s, about Timothy Leary. You mentioned the fact I made the biography of Timothy Leary called Timothy Leary's Dead. It was a great success at the Toronto Film Festival. You can find that online to stream. But, um, you know, at, at, at that time, we had no concept that the CIA had anything to do with this, and we thought that it would be a mind-awakening experience, uh, maybe a little bit like psychotherapy. We would be better people for having gone through it. And, and I do want to say that th this book, it, it's not a condemnation of the program. It's not setting out to show the doctors behind it as evil people. It wasn't the case. It was a two-edged sword. There was a positive aspect to being part of this research, and there was a nightmare aspect to being part of the research, and they came hand in hand. Were either one of those polar instances, were they planned at all in terms of the horror or the positive outcome, or were they just 
virtually experimenting, not knowing what the heck was going to happen. These were the results. They knew what they were looking for, and they've published on it subsequently. Osmond and Dr. Bernard Aronson, who ran the hypnosis part of the program, uh, wrote or they edited a book of articles about psychedelics. I think it was called Psychedelics, the Uses and Implications of Psychedelic Drugs. This was sometime in the 70s that this came out. And they described these experiments in, uh, in the book. Not the whole aspect of it, but the intent behind it. Non, there was the non-drug analogs to the psychedelic state, and then there was the use of uh, microdosing with hypnosis. Uh, there was uh, placebo used with some of the subjects who were not given psychedelics, but maybe thought that they were. What they wanted to know, because the psychedelic drugs had previously been called psychotomimetic, it was assumed in the psychiatric community that these drugs mimicked psychosis that they put someone into uh, the state that a schizophrenic might experience. If you want to know the world of someone who's mad, you know, would you take a psychedelic drug? There was an architect, a famous architect who designed a mental hospital who took LSD-25 as a preparation for designing the hospital to get inside the mind of, of uh, someone in that kind of a mental state. But Osmond... His theory was that these are not really psychotomimetic drugs, that uh, schizophrenia, paranoia, mental illness is something very different from what the psychedelic mind-manifesting drugs do to an individual. Uh, with the psychedelics, you do get a, an extraordinary mind-awakening experience. You have an experience of time slowing down, of a day turning into an eternity. Uh, there are changes to vision, certainly massive changes to thought, as there are streams of thoughts that are normally inaccessible, part of the unconscious, that are normally filtered by the brain, that under the influence of these drugs come pouring into consciousness for eight to ten hours. So Osmond wanted hypnotic subjects who he could put in hypnotic conditions and change their perception of reality in different ways and try to see which changes in experiential consciousness bring on withdrawal, paranoia, fear, horror, nightmare, with, you know, they, all of those, uh, those, those negatives, split personality, and which changes in perception and consciousness would bring about what would be considered an elevated state of consciousness, something maybe closer to the, the mystic nirvana that yogis attempt to achieve. Cosmic consciousness, um, the positive, the illumination side of it. So as subjects, we were put in conditions that induced both. Some, some days it would be one, some days it would be another, and our behavior would be studied. And, and this might be a period of four to six hours. After a period of training of many months, so that we were susceptible to going to very, very deep states, hypnosis 
can be very powerful in people that are trained to go on. It can be used as an anesthetic. And, and it probably was before there was anesthesia. So that was the purpose. You know, for us, it had nothing to do with finding the perfect assassin. These doctors had these goals. And I think they had the intent to explore this before the CIA was ever involved. They, I think they went to the CIA for funding. They found that they could, they found a very receptive audience. No kidding with the CIA. And I just want to take a quote from the book, folks. The quote goes, last year, this is from a character called Puck in the book, Puck. and uh, good old Puck. And last year, the funding for the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute Bureau of Research was listed at $600,000. Now get this, the Institute's Bureau of Research is supported financially by, are you ready folks? The state of New Jersey, through funds appropriated under the Division of Mental Health and Hospitals, Department of Institutions and Agencies, along with grant funds from U.S. Public Health Service, National Science Foundation, private foundations, industry, and private individuals. That's one hell of a lot of loose money coming to finance a loony bin. Excellent quote. And I think that puts into perspective how much money was available for the doctors to continue their experiments. Now, obviously, the CIA was looking for more than probably what Osmond was willing to give them. But I want to ask you a personal question. When you, come in, when you came into the office and all of a sudden you're in this nirvana state, if you will, this utopia, did you feel that you tapped into the consciousness of the universe, as you put it, or the global consciousness? That's a Jungian term. Well, I, I, I did. I mean, uh, Osmond gave LSD to uh, some of the subjects. I had LSD okay. at that time and knew that I was under right. the influence of LSD. Uh, John Selby, at our website, blowingamericasmind.com, he has a blog where he describes uh, the LSD uh, experience he had when Osmond was his guide. And let me say, when it comes to finding a guide, Timothy Leary said, you need a guide, you need a good set and setting. Well, could you find anyone better than Humphrey Osmond? He turned on Aldous Huxley with psychedelics. He gave Aldous Huxley mescaline. For those who don't remember Aldous Huxley, the great writer, philosopher, the book Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, after having the mescaline experience with Dr. Osmond, wrote a book called The Doors of Perception, which was the first comprehensive description of what a, a mescaline, like peyote, experience uh, is like. From The Doors of Perception, you get the name of Jim Morrison's band, you get The Doors. You know, it had enormous influence back then. It was all connected. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ken Kesey, The Merry Pranksters, The Bus, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test of Tom Wolfe, uh, his, his book about Ken Kesey, The Beatles. They, yeah. they proselytized, they were all proselytizing LSD. It was massively available. And why? Thank the CIA. I mean, look, LSD-25 was discovered in 1938. Uh, Albert Hoffman, a Swiss chemist. Uh, he found that uh, animals subjected to it had very strange reactions. He locked it up in a drawer. He didn't look into it further until like five years later 
when he accidentally ingested a little bit of it. And taking a bicycle home from work, as he did often, had the most extraordinary bicycle trip anyone has ever had. He said that his pulse remained the same, his, his uh, blood pressure, uh, his breathing. He had maybe the, the world's first human psychedelic LSD trip. Um, the CIA uh, became aware of it. Uh, Sandoz in Switzerland became a manufacturer, a supplier of LSD-25 to the CIA. Why would the CIA want to know about this? They researched 139 drugs under this program. LSD was just one of them. They wanted, they were looking for the perfect truth serum. They wanted the perfect drug that could be exposed to enemy soldiers on the battlefield and make them lay down their weapons. And there are, uh, there are old uh, army or military uh, films of their experiments of uh, LSD on, uh, on, on, on military subjects, on soldiers. And they're trying to find out, will the soldiers follow orders? When, no, they don't. They, you know, they're commanded to do something, and they say to their superior officer, do it yourself. <laughs> you know? I'm not doing it. That's the effect of LSD. Don't bother me. I'm on a trip. So is it an effective, disruptive agent to people that are supposed to do a specific job? Yes, of course, yes. And they manufactured millions of doses of it. And then along comes uh, Augustus Owsley. Oh, Owsley, I think, was his middle name. Um, Stanley. And then he manufactured a million and a half doses. And he disseminated it. Ken Kesey disseminated a lot of that to before it was declared illegal, illegal by the way this was back in uh, before 1966 say 1964 he would go from city to city in that crazy psychedelically painted school bus and in kool-aid give lsd to thousands of people they were told it was lsd but they were told they were taking the acid test electric so, kool-aid yeah hundreds of thousands yeah. of americans were exposed to it back then thank the cia or blame the CIA for those who have psychological repercussions and have had to see a psychiatrist because mm -hmm. of it, send the bill for your medical services to, to the, the CIA. CIA. <laughs> uh, and then society turned against it en masse and shut down How come? access. How come? Fear was generated massively. Well, it what was during the, the Vietnam fear? War. Right. During okay. the Vietnam War, you going. had a breakdown okay. of society going on. You had the anti-war movement. The massive dissemination of LSD helped break down the anti-war movement because those that were busy taking acid and finding nirvana were not so interested in public demonstrations. But um, there were there were injuries, you know. There were reports of uh, suicides. Um, there were, and this generated all kinds of scare stories. Uh, Reader's Digest, I, I think, at one point said that uh, someone who takes LSD is, is like trying to be a brain surgeon with no training operating on their own brain. But this came after years of Time Magazine and Life Magazine um, spreading the word about LSD as a positive thing. Cary Grant, LSD psychotherapy, cured him, he said. So 
the truth of the benefits of the psychedelics became buried under an absolute onslaught of negative scare stories. And it was declared illegal in 1966. Is there a parallel there between cocaine as well? I'll give you an example. In the 70s, people were turning on to cocaine. They were snorting cocaine. It was, you know, you got clapped in and, and all these people taking cocaine. And they say, oh, it's, it's enlightening. It'll expand your mind. The same thing they said about LSD, except, of course, it's not going to get you into any trouble. You will not become addicted. Now, we know cocaine's extremely addictive. I yes. suspect LSD is too. I think anything that offers you nirvana, the best feeling you've ever had in the world, you're going to want to continue that feeling no matter what. Um, well, is, is that one it, of the it, dangers? It, there, there's a difference, I think, between physical Please. addiction. Physical addiction. Okay. You know, you talk about cocaine or heroin. Physically addictive. I mean, if if, if you don't have it. You know the body is going to react in a in a terrible way, but uh, I don't think anybody has ever established that any of the psychedelic drugs are physically addictive. They're not. Uh, there's no evidence that marijuana, maybe the tamest of, if you even want to call it a psychedelic drug, uh, is uh, physically addictive. Now, psychologically addictive for some personalities. For some, everybody reacts you know, differently. Uh, some are able to uh, try these things a few times to experience it and learn what they can from it. And uh, others, it becomes a, a crutch. I'm just finishing watching a four-hour documentary on the Grateful Dead called Long Strange Trip. It's a new documentary. Were they psychologically addicted to LSD, the Grateful Dead? Yes. Um, they were taking it all the time at all the concerts. As a matter of fact, Owsley, who I mentioned before as the proselytizing manufacturer of so much LSD, uh, he was certainly one of the founders of the, the Grateful Dead um, and uh, supplier to Jerry Garcia and that whole bunch. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but there is no physical addiction from the psychedelic drugs that anybody has ever shown. I should just say that I've got to protect the young folks that are listening out there right now. I don't endorse any kind of drugs or alcohol or anything, and neither does anybody associated with the show. Okay. Well, the, the laws are, are certainly still an obstacle. Yeah. Um, they are, they're all against the law, and if you're getting something illicitly, you can never be sure of what it is that you're, you're getting. I mean, I... One of my theories is that a lot of the very bad trips of LSD uh, that we heard about from back then, it, it was not pure LSD, but they, you know, they mixed it with other drugs. You, if, if, you're, if you're not getting it through established, legitimate sources, which would have to be the medical research community at this point, I think they've begun doing research on the psychedelics again. And this has been recent because all research was shut down for decades, even on marijuana. Well, yes you know. and no. <laughs> no? Do I have that wrong? Well, okay, tell me. You know, um, some of the sources I've looked at have said that they've continued it, but they've just changed the name of it, and, and they bury it now. It's, it's all quietly. hidden. Yeah, quietly, yes. so very, very quietly. And again, it's all done in a stealth mode where they don't inform the patient. And um, you've got to be you can't, heads up you can't You can't sign up for it, you know, the way I did in blowing America's mind yeah. because I saw an advertisement uh, 
on a kiosk in Princeton walking down the street saying, you know, we want hypnotic subjects. Are you interested? I'm in, especially in all boys school. Apparently one of the, one of the side effects of this, uh, folks, was an enhanced sexual experience. So you got a whole school full of males. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what you, what, who's not going to sign up for this thing? It's going to well, break down your inhibitions and meet girls like you do in the book. And uh, the book is called, by the way, Blowing America's Mind, A True Story of Princeton CIA Mind Control, LSD and Zen by Paul Jeffrey Davids, our guest tonight, and his co-author, John Selby. Can you do us a favor, Paul? Can you walk yeah. us in to the office the very first time you walked in? Take us into the chair, what Osmond told you, et cetera, et cetera. Can you take us through? You mean after, after I was already accepted as a subject? Or yeah, the first very... time I go out to the Institute and I'm interviewed and meeting these doctors, a very wide-eyed, naive, young Princeton student. Both. I'm ushered... both? All right. Well, I was starting to talk about my first exposure to the Institute, this uh, three-story brick building very homey offices. I mean, very casual. People are laid back. They have a, an extraordinary library that I'm ushered into. And I'm made to wait to meet Dr. Aronson, who's the head of the hypnosis program. Uh, I, I, I wait in the library and I look around at the books and it, they have a, an esoteric book on every far out, weird, unusual subject I'd ever been interested in. So right away I'm thinking, wow, this is for me. You know, I found home. And I was, um, you know, I, I was shy. I think I was sort of repressed. I found it hard to talk about sexual things and a lot of personal things. And, of course, Aronson sort of probed at me to see, well, could I be open enough to, I mean, it didn't, wouldn't help them to have a subject who couldn't be articulate about what was going on. And I, I, I you know, I worked through that and, you know, gained his confidence that he would want me as a subject. Um, he hypnotized me initially to see how susceptible would I be. But there's, as I said, there's this training. So at the beginning, it's like a light trance. It's like you relax. It's a little bit like meditation. Your breathing becomes slow, and even, and you, you release the thoughts from your mind and you're guided by the hypnotist voice as to what you're to experience. Um, and then he turned me over to a training hypnotist to get me to a point where I would be receptive to a code word to go into a trance, not a light trance, but very, very quickly to go under and then the trance would be deepened, and then the perceptions would be changed, and the conditions are given that change your, your experience, whether it's stopping time or slowing down time or making you six inches tall or taking you out to, to, to uh, a, uh, a frozen lake in the middle of winter uh, and having you lie down uh, on, on the ice and merge with the ice and become a block of ice. You know, all these different kinds of very strange conditions. So the training hypnotist was, for me, was John Selby. This is one of the really unusual, quirky things about our book that is 
so special about it. First of all, because John Selby and I were as different as two personalities could be. He's a cowboy from the West. He grew up on a cattle ranch. I mean, he rode horses. I mean, his world was so different from mine. I'm the son of uh, a famous college professor, a scholar of American diplomatic history, Dr. Can, Jules Davids. You can talk about the book if you want, Reid. I was going to ask you that at the very end. Oh, about Profiles wanted... and Courage. Yes, please yeah, Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah, that my, my, that back when I was a, a youngster, um, well, it was the uh, mid-1950s, I think, that my dad was, he had Jacqueline Kennedy as a student, and uh, Senator John F. Kennedy was thinking, he had a, the idea of running for president. Um, he hadn't served a long time as a senator, and th this idea of having a book that could be very prominent um, could help his political career. So the idea for Profiles in Courage is born. He's working with Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, and he hears from Jackie Kennedy about my dad's expertise in American diplomatic history. They're, they're looking for the best cases of senators who showed political courage by taking positions that were against their constituencies in their home states. Bravery, courage. Um, and my dad had the expertise, so he was brought in by Sorensen, and, and he was hired to write first draft treatments to, to select some of the people that would be in the book. And the book is nine chapters. My dad wrote treatment chapters for the first layout of what the chapters would be for five of the nine chapters. It's not to say he was a ghostwriter or that his words were used in the final book. But in movies, you have treatments, which is like the story, and then you have a scriptwriter who writes the actual dialogue. That's the distinction. But my dad lent his expertise to that, and uh, he's credited in the preface. And, and even now, the JFK Library, you can get my dad's writing on Profiles and Courage from the library, uh, at least I think on Sam Houston, maybe some of the others. So yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm making the point of how different my background is from the cowboy, John Selby. Why is John Selby assigned as my hypnotist? Well, Bernie Aronson of the New Jersey Neuropsych Institute has decided to keep John Selby on and offer him a full-time job as a hypnotist the following year. He's enticed him with that he could get a draft affirmant for this, that it would be considered in the national interest and he wouldn't be drafted and sent to Vietnam. Well, John Selby had no interest in being drafted and sent to Vietnam. So... You know, the Institute really had him, had him on a string. They had him. But he's so conflicted because he's undergoing a psychological crisis from the hypnotic conditions. He's experienced a year, for a year before I get into the program. Can I just interrupt you for a second? I just want to give a little bit of context. Back then, the Vietnam War was raging. There was something in place called the draft. The draft was essentially if you weren't going to school and you weren't working, you were going to go in the army and you were going to go to Vietnam. And the conscription. bodies conscription and people were coming back in body bags. And you've got this all male university. The guys are terrified, terrified that they're going to be given a draft card. Sorry to interrupt you. So this is part of that fear factor. Well, everyone had a draft card. You had to have. You had to enlist to have a card but then you're called up by the draft board, right? 
eventually they went to a lottery system and if you had a low lottery number they didn't draft you which explains why I didn't end up in the military but for John Selby um, he thought of taking the full-time job and they were starting him as a training hypnotist and they assigned me to him so initially we had sessions where he taught me how to undergo hypnosis and he was a brilliant hypnotist He's very very talented as a hypnotist and I came to a point where I could go under to um, a code word and then have these experiences and you see I didn't get into it as deeply as John Selby who had been in the program already a year and he was having a crisis from these conditions he was having flashbacks they were disrupting his life they were disrupting his love life he was in love with a woman then where uh, the uh, Dr. Aronson was manipulating his relationship with the girl that he loved it's a love story too it's there Dr. Aronson offers the girl that John Selby loves a job at the Institute to get her into the fold and keep her under his wing and control uh, too and uh, you know someone once said that their impression of hypnosis was you couldn't use hypnosis to change someone's basic conviction or feeling something that was very basic to their core that may be true you can't do it by if you want to discourage a relationship with a certain woman you don't want your subject involved with you don't do it by saying uh, you don't love her anymore but you might do it by saying when you're with her and you get very close you're going to feel nauseous you're going to be overcome by nausea you're going to want to excuse yourself you will probably have to throw up they did that to him they did that so you know that's the dark side okay you had mentioned yeah. trigger word is it possible that they've instilled trigger words in people that they've done the experiments on and never released them from those trigger words in other words we're getting back to the Manjurian candidate kind of thing but they can be so, called you know please go ahead and, and it, yes it, is it possible anything like that is possible it's speculation could could be but the point to be made here is when people have asked me how do you know you were part of the assassination program <laughs> well they weren't looking for Ivy League Princeton students for that program who did they want for that they wanted loners people that had no family connections people who uh, could be made to disappear from society and nobody's gonna miss them you know that's who they were looking for for the Manchurian candidate let me just do this part then okay I want to read you this in Montreal in the early 1950s folks there was a doctor by the name of Dr. Hartogs Renatus Hartogs and he worked in McGill University he became a psychiatrist there he went on and he graduated and he started part of the mind control that we know as MK Ultra behavior modification he was desperate for test cases he moved to New York and he solicited New York Catholic orphanages offering money to the administrators in order to secure test patients the administrators of children that were housed there under their protection and only the highest moral standards the Warren Commission folks here's where I jumped to Lee Harvey Oswald in August 1963 Lee Harvey Oswald spotted in Montreal 
handing out those leaflets that he was spotted also in New Orleans handing out. So Lee Harvey Oswald, there's a connection here. The commission's thesis was that Lee Harvey Oswald was nothing more than a disenfranchised youth and malcontent who had acted alone. Therefore, it was imperative that the Warren Commission get expert testimony to attest to Oswald's unstable behavior. So guess who a psychiatrist was that had treated Oswald when Oswald was a delinquent, quote-unquote, young teacher, a tongue teenager. In Oswald's early teenage years, because he had skipped school so much and repeatedly got caught, it was decided that he would have to see a psychiatrist. Guess who the psychiatrist was? Dr. Renatus Hartogs. He was solicited by the Warren Commission. He went on to testify against Lee Harvey Oswald, and that testimony solidified him as a lone nut assassin. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. Yeah, that's uh, one of three Montreal connections to the three assassinations, by the way, folks. Uh, I just wanted to let you know. So you've got this MK Ultra program in place. We talked about, I, I was, was going to go esoterical on you back then, but I'm going to go now. When you tapped into that nirvana, everything's in ballast in the universe. If you have a bright white light, you're gonna, the only way you can see a bright white light is if you have sheer darkness beside it. Did you ever tap into that sheer darkness as well? What yes, were the horrors sure. that happened? Sure. You know, it's very hard to put words to. They describe the psychedelic uh, experience sometimes as um, an experience of ego loss, which is what the Buddhist monks strive for, you know, to get beyond the ego, get beyond the self that exists within one body and identify with the universe. But um, the process of ego loss is very scary. I mean, we... Um, the drugs uh, tend to strip away uh, your sense of uh, ego and self and put you in a state of direct perception of all this fantastic stimuli that's all around us, that's being filtered, filtered by the brain all the time. Because if we saw it all, if we had access to it all, um, we would be so overwhelmed we wouldn't be able to function. Our senses are limited. You know, dogs can hear a higher range. There are animals that can see colors that we can't uh, that we can't see. Uh, there's a chapter in the book where John Selby uh, sits down with the president of Princeton University at that time, Robert F. Goheen, and Goheen is concerned about the use of psychedelics on campus. And John Selby's trying to explain why, what it is that LSD does. And I think he, 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 he says it's part of the brain called the diencephalon, which um, basically shuts out most of reality from what we perceive all the time. And Goheen's attitude is, you know, but uh, I've never had any desire to change my basic functions of reality. I value our traditions, you know, religious and historic traditions. I would never want to change any of that. Why would you? So it's a clash of the worlds, and it's a meeting that actually happened. But I want to also point out about um, President Goheen. Very interesting that after he was president of Princeton, Richard Nixon appointed him as the U.S. ambassador to India, a nuclear nation. 
And there, you know, has there been pushback on our book, you know, from quarters? Well, you know, the, uh, you know, they've heard rumblings from some people that say mm, that chapter with President Goheen. I mean, you think he had CIA connections? You know, what are what are you implying there? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know what his government connections were, but surely he was deeply uh, involved in government to have had that kind of relationship with President Richard Nixon that he's appointed to be ambassador to India later on. That's all I'm saying. And, and, and did was President Goheen aware of these experiments that were going on at the uh, Institute? Absolutely. Uh, John Selby spoke out of school to reporters and, you know, there was some article about it and LSD use at Princeton. Uh, and the university was very upset about that at that time. So, But yeah, that's what I love were... about the book, folks. The book is called Blowing America's Mind, A True Story of Princeton, CIA, Mind Control, LSD, and Zen by Paul Jeffrey Davids, our guest tonight, and co-author John Selby, who he's referencing all the time. It's a true story. What I love about the book, that exact scene that you and I use the word scene on purpose I'll explain more yeah. in a second that exact scene is a great metaphor symbolism for the 60s you've got the young and the traditional that's what the 60s was it was this coming of age of the baby boomers let's face it you know and we were trying and experimenting with different different things didn't always get it right but we certainly got some of the things right like civil rights and and women's rights and gay and lesbian rights and things of that nature the drug thing yeah maybe not so much in the 60s maybe now who knows this is not just a book folks this is a movie in a book <laughs> maybe it will be <laughs> you know. <Et> voila. <laughs> and i think I, it should be and i, I got dibs on the music i'm just telling you i compose music for tv and film you know that and You'll send uh, I got, me an audition tape. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a problem. So, yeah, it's wonderfully written. I, I, I thank you. I, I want to uh, interrupt to make uh, another point about the, the book, Please. if I may. I mean, it took 40 years for us to complete it. We waited until uh, the, the, the real names of all the, uh, the scientists and researchers used in the book, and, and um, they're all deceased now. So, you know, we use the real names for everybody, maybe except for some of our college student friends at the time, you know, but... So this um, is like the JFK files that were just released. This is the MK Ultra files. <laughs> it's been a long, long birthing process, but I don't want people to have the impression from our conversation that it's a kind of nonfiction book that's almost like a treatise about MK Ultra. It absolutely isn't. You know, Tom Wolfe wrote the famous book about... Ken Kesey and uh, the Merry Pranksters, who disseminated LSD, as I described. His, his book was The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And Ken Kesey was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This is all very important to understand in the 1960s. Our experience at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute was a real-life flight over the cuckoo's nest. And when Tom Wolfe described what his book was, I have a quote here from him. He said... Uh, the Merry Pranksters, that was the Ken Kesey group that was disseminating LSD and traveling around in the psychedelic school bus. Tom Wolfe said, I've tried not only to tell what the pranksters did, but to recreate the mental atmosphere or subjective reality of it. I don't think their adventures can be understood without that. And I borrow those words to say it's exactly the approach we've taken here. We're trying in our book to recreate the mental atmosphere and subjective reality 
of what it was like to live at that time and be part of these experiments with those people. Without putting it into context of time and what was happening, the Vietnam War is so important in this narrative, so important. As I said, the coming of age of a whole generation. This is what this book is all about, folks. Now, no discussion of LSD <laughs> would be complete without Timothy Leary. Can you tell us your personal experiences with good old Timmy? I'm so glad you asked, because I didn't know Timothy Leary when I was at Princeton. Uh, John Selby had heard him, and he'd heard Baba Ramdas, Dr. Richard Alpert, the cohort of Timothy Leary, Harvard professor, uh, very famous professor who, with Alpert, was fired from uh, Harvard uh, for their experiments with psilocybin on undergraduates, the magic mushrooms. Timothy Leary, I met years later. Um, it was, I think, 1995, and I had met the publisher, the republisher of Timothy Leary's books, the reprints. I had met him at a book convention, and he called me up. He knew I had made the film Roswell. He respected me as a filmmaker, as a producer, and he said, Paul, Timothy Leary is dying. He has prostate cancer. It's metastasized. He doesn't have long to live. No one's made a feature documentary about his life. I think you're the guy to do it. You were connected with Humphrey Osmond, who was a friend of Timothy Leary. You know, go to Timothy Leary, tell him about your Osmond connection. Uh, he would agree, I, I'm sure, said the publisher, uh, to let you make a film about his life. Well, that's what happened, but I, I said, where's the money going to come from? You know, who's going to pay for this movie? It's fine if he'll say yes, but I can't fund CIA. No, I'm just kidding. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> At that time, there was a, uh, a, 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 a conservative entrepreneur I knew who was very involved with the military. He had a, a, a company that made products that had military uses. He had met me after making Roswell, uh, after I made Roswell, and he said he wanted to be in the movie business. He'd like to do a movie with me. Let's get together, have a lunch, let me pitch. So I had about five projects I wanted to do. I think this was 1995, scripts I had written, things I'd been thinking about for years. And then, of course, there's the Timothy Leary. But this man was so conservative, so Republican, if you will. I just knew he wasn't going to go for the Timothy Leary biography. So I put it at the last of the list. We had the lunch. I went through them one by one by one. And he said, uh, nope, mm, not that one. Uh, nope, nope. What else have you got? So we get to the bottom of the barrel, and I bring up Timothy Leary. I said, I got this call from the producer, uh, from the publisher. He says, Timothy's dying, and we could make a movie if, if we had funding. I will never forget what happened next. He reached into his sport coat, and he took out his checkbook. He slammed it down on the table and he said, when can we start? He funded it. He funded it. Now, did he have, did he give you complete creative control or did he want to be? He wanted to be. Uh -huh. <laughs> look, look, I was the director. We produced it together. We wrote it together. So, you know, I had to run everything by him. But it was a good, good creative collaboration. It was, we both appreciated the whole trip, the whole story. There was never anything he did that impaired the quality of this project. 
And we sought out lots of people who knew Timothy Leary. So we got Baba Ramdas and uh, Ralph uh, Metzner and um, uh, well, Michael Bowen, the artist. It was at Woodstock. Uh, a whole collection of very interesting people from those psychedelic times. We called the movie Timothy Leary's Dead because the, the, that's the lyrics of the Moody Blues song that's so famous. The name of that Moody Blues song, however, is Legend of a Mind. It's not Timothy Leary's Dead. But we took those words and we made a deal to use the music. And uh, we redid our own version of the music, you know, but it's, it's there. And we did the biography, but we, you know, we were merry pranksters about it. We made it a psychedelic experience, and we teased and played with our audience, and we put some things in there that it would baffle our audience. They'd wonder, you know, did that really happen? Is that right? Particularly having to do with the fact that Timothy Leary wanted to be cryogenically frozen when he was dead. As a matter of fact, not the whole body. He only had money to have his head decapitated and have his brain preserved. And he intended to do that. So when we showed it in the movie, and it had been publicly announced that, no, he never went through with that. He was cremated, and his ashes were sent into space uh, with the ashes of uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Yeah, Scotty's up there too, Scotty. Um, so he is. Yeah. So the people yeah. asked. Uh, yeah. And uh, look... We felt we had a right to be merry pranksters, and we thought in the ending credits we showed that, that there was pranksterism involved. But so many people thought that what they saw was literally true and couldn't have been – no special effects involved. Uh, I just – I don't know how much time we have. Sure, go ahead. Sure. When the movie went into a theater in Berkeley in its limited theatrical run – uh, got to the certain scene that dealt with the postmortem decapitation and freezing the head, and she threw up right there in the movie theater. They canceled the rest of the run of the movie, and that was the end pretty much of a... It was a small theatrical distributor. That was pretty much the end of our... It ended with a little bit of nausea. <laughs> that was the end of the theatrical release. However, we've brought Timothy Leary's Dead back now, uh, online, so you can stream it, and you can see what all the fuss was about. And and that movie went to like 15 major film festivals. We were treated like kings in Venice, Italy, Toronto. There were lines around the block for it. It was one of my greatest experiences as a filmmaker. Muzzle tough on that, by the way. Muzzle tough. That's fantastic. Thank you. The book is called Blowing America's Mind, A True Story of Princeton, CIA, Mind Control, LSD, and Zen by Paul Jeffrey Davids, who has been most gracious tonight to join us, and his co-author, John Selby. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been just absolutely wonderful. Brent, you were terrific. Sin thank seriously, you. seriously enjoyed it. Ser sincerely. Um, Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Michael, I would love to have you back on. We'll talk about Roswell and some of your other, and Timothy Leary and some of your other projects. Would love that. Brent, it sounds like we're also going to be talking about your music at some point, too. You've got me, if you've you got want me hooked to, now, right? If you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so Brent Holland from, please go ahead. Let, go let's ahead. make this chapter one, then. Chapter one. Chapter one, folks. Scene one. Here we go. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. Thank you all for joining us so much. We'll see you next time. Take care.